Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Today we're going to not start a new series. We'll do that in a couple of weeks. But we're going to do a standalone message tonight called The Master Conductor. Now, has has anyone ever seen... Uh, an orchestra, either in person or online somewhere. Anybody, orchestra folks in the building? Yeah. <clears throat> and there's typically like a, a, like an older guy with crazy hair with a wand, right? You know what I mean? And like he's standing there giving the whole, you know, keeping everybody going. It's like, boom, and his hair is all flopping around like an old school troll. If you're over 40, you probably had one of those. If not, then... Just not the movie, Trolls, not the movie, it was way before that. But, and you know, he's always like got his back to the audience and he's always conducting and up and down and around and all that kind of stuff. And so if you've seen one of these guys uh, and you were like me, I was like, man, I can do that. I can stand there and, you know, like put a little timer in my ear and be like, you know, get all dramatic with it back and forth and up and down a little bit louder and a little bit softer your turn now your turn you know I could do all that you know it's almost like a workout video your turn now your turn like it's kind of like moving all around and I always felt like I could do that until I read the job description of a conductor and so I put it in your notes just because I want to make sure that everybody understands just how much this guy has to do when it comes to uh, an orchestra and being the conductor so A conductor of an orchestra has the primary responsibility of preparing the musical ensemble for public presentation. This requires the interpretation of musical works and real-time communication of those interpretations to musicians. It is expected that the conductor will learn the entire score rather than just an individual part. He accomplishes this in part by standing on a podium in front of the musicians while executing a series of specific arm movements. The musicians interpret these uh, movements, gaining information such as how fast or loud to play. Fundamental knowledge of every instrument is standard. As well, and during the rehearsal process, conductors might physically demonstrate or verbally describe exactly what they want the orchestra members to do to get a a specific sound. So I went really quick from, I could do that, to I am nowhere near qualified to do any of that. Because you don't just have a violinist playing a part. You typically have a violin section that is playing multiple parts. And to get into the orchestra, you have to be wildly, wildly proficient at your instrument, be able to read the music and execute it flawlessly on your instrument so it doesn't throw off the sound of the entire orchestra. That part is hard enough. But the conductor stepping in to know how every single instrument operates and is played and how to manipulate the instrument to get a certain sound out of it. He has to know that for every part, every instrument under his command. And if you're not doing it right, there's a, there's a 
possibility that he walks off that stand, takes your instrument, shows you how to do it, or where to hold your hand, or how to move your finger on a valve if you're a trumpet player, or so on down the line, and hey, you're out of tune a little bit, pull your... Pull, pull the brass part out of the front part of your instrument for a trombone or something. He has to know all of that proficiently. So the next time you see a conductor, think about just how much he has to know before he ever steps foot on that podium. He's got to know, if we're all an orchestra in here and a conductor walks in, he's got to know every single one of your parts. And when you're off, when you're too fast, when you're a half measure behind, when you're too slow, when, there's, when you're not doing any vibrato, when there should be vibrato, and how to help you manipulate the instrument. And if he doesn't get up and take the instrument from you, he has to sing it to you or hum the melody to you and tell you what to do to achieve the sound that he's after. It is a wildly specific, wildly entailed, wildly detailed job. Today, we're going to talk about um, kind of a summary of how the Christian church got started. And I want you to see just how specific, just how detailed, just how intricate God's hand is in every single piece of the beginning of what we call the church. So we're going to pick up the story right after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He's come back alive. He's been seen by hundreds of people. Hundreds of people have seen him. He's met on the top of the mountain, and he has ascended into heaven. And he told the disciples what? Does anybody know what he told the disciples before he left? Anybody? Just shout it out. <clears throat> he told them to go into the world and make disciples and to go and to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. That's what he told them. Then he ascends into heaven, and so then they go. Now, there were how many disciples? There we go, 12. Y'all be warming up here a little bit. You can talk back to me. <clears throat> um, there were 12 disciples, but Judas, being one of those disciples, betrays Jesus, sells them out for 30 pieces of silver, realizes what he's done after it's over, and he can't undo it, and so he kills himself. Right? So, this leaves, first line of your notes, this left the disciples of only 11 members. <clears throat> Did you know that the disciples replaced Judas to get their number back to 12? Did you know that? I was never taught that as a kid either, but we're going to read this, okay? Acts uh, 1, 15 through 17. During this time, when the 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Let's jump down to verse 21. So now... We must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Let's stop right there. I had no clue that there were other people 
following Jesus the entire time from baptism to ascension. There was the 12 that he picked, but there were other people who got involved and followed him along the entire way. They looked at these men and said, um, of all these people who've been with us the whole time, they know the whole story. They, they've seen it for themselves. They've been here while he's taught. They've seen him turn uh, um, uh, water into wine. They were there when he fed the 5,000 with a, with a few fish and a few pieces of bread. They were there the entire time that he did that. Those guys, we're going to pick one of them to replace Judas. Let's keep going. <clears throat> Whoever is chosen will, take a, um, will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. I might be a little partial to the last guy. Um, when they all prayed, then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots. And Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. Do you know what that means, to cast lots? You ever heard that statement before? People sat at the foot of the cross and cast lots to get Jesus' robe. You know what that means? You ever played a board game that has dice? And you roll the dice to see how many moves you get to go? It's basically rolling dice. It's like... The equivalent of drawing straws. It's, and they used to use these stones in a bag and then throw them out however the formation went or what side they would land on. They would, it would tell them, you know, whose turn it was or, or in their game. Or they would use polished sticks. And they'd roll them a certain way and however, you know, distance they were apart or if they landed on top of each other. It was basically like a coin flip. The disciples replaced Judas with a with a bunch of guy with one of the guys they nominated and they're like, you know what? Flip a coin on it. I read that and I was like, there ain't a better way. <laughs> like we're down to flipping coins, like really guys? Like we're flipping coins here? Like we're drawing straws? Like that's how we're picking the guy who becomes the twelfth apostle? That's what we're down to. And as I sat there in my very judgmental, arrogant, westernized Christianity mind, it hit me that it wasn't a bad idea. It was a great idea because of the statement beforehand. They prayed and asked God to show them which one they should pick. These guys had so much faith so much trust, so much conviction that God was going to answer them and answer them right then and answer them right away to replace this man that they would say, I'm going to flip a coin, draw straws, roll a dice, and however this comes up, God knows and he's in that much control that he's going to nudge something in the way that he wants it to go. I think it's a bad idea because I go, really? Like... A coin flip. 
They thought it was a great idea because the level of faith and trust that they had in God was at an all-time high. They had seen him raise from the dead. They seen him move the mountains. They seen him go from, from crucified to buried to resurrected to appearing to them to cooking food for them on the edge of the shore to allowing Thomas to put his hands inside the nail scars and, and the, the piercing on his side. They went from all of that and they seen him ascend. And at that point in time, their, their faith, all time high. So here we are at the cross. The tomb, I'm not a really good drawer, so just roll with me here. <clears throat> the tomb, right? And then um, he resurrects. He shows himself to more than 500 people. Then he ascends again into heaven. And now he tells these guys, go wait. And then 120 of them gather together, and they roll dice. The dice. They roll dice to figure out who's going to be the replacement for Judas as the 12th apostle. This is all before they get to the upper room. All beforehand. So then these 120 people go to the upper room. You ever heard that statement? They were in the upper room. You know what that means? They were on the second story of a building. That's it. I always thought there was something about the upper room. Where's the room? And we're not going to the room. We're going to the upper part of the room, right? We're going to go there. So he goes to, they go to the upper room. It's just the second story, a big room on, on the second story of a building. And they wait there until the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. Before they got there, I try to, uh, here's what I try to do. I try, I try to be careful with this, but whenever I read something that happens in Scripture, I try to put myself in the place of the people it's happening to. And go, how would I feel if that was me? If I was Matthias, I'd be like, four, one with the twelve. But if I was Justice, dang it. Imagine if they were drawing straws. He's just, that, nope, that, this one, this one, this one. Just go for it, just go for it, grab it. And he picked the wrong one, and then Matthias picked the right one. He's like, I was going to pick that one. I, I put myself in those shoes, you know, that's not really what happened, but I put myself in those shoes, like I would be frustrated if that's how it unfolded. Because when I'm not picked for something, I get my feelings hurt. When I'm not the one chosen for the big task, when I've been there the whole time, I didn't just show up at the end. I've been there since the baptism. I've been rolling deep with all y'all. We've been walking everywhere. Walking. Walking. Everywhere. It's hot. Like today, we're walking outside. I've been with y'all. I've been running errands for you. I've been doing all this stuff with you. I've been, been there. And then watching God pick somebody else for that scenario would leave me feeling with rejection and a little bit of disappointment. But, you know, they don't record in Scripture that justice was upset. Matt would have been. 
And most of y'all would have been too, don't you even lie, like all you holy people in this room. Sergio would have been mad. He'd be like, whoo, dodged it. <laughs> I'd have been frustrated because I was nominated for something. And what happens when we don't get the thing that we expect or the thing that we want or the position, what happens is disappointment sets in for us. And we start to go, how come I'm not good enough? Why does that guy get to go? I, bro, I know what he said last week. <laughs> Me and him were bunk mates. We had to sleep in the same stinking tent. Me and that dude, I know that dude. How did he get in there and not me? This is, this is crazy. And I would begin to justify <clears throat> why I should have been the one. I would have been had my feelings hurt. But if you've ever experienced that, here's what I want to communicate to you. If God picked uh, someone else for that job, it's not because you are less or because you're not worth anything or because he's, re he's rejected you because you have failed miserably or you should have prayed that one extra hour and you would have got in like you try to justify. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want you. It means he wants you for something else. So in essence, not picking you is picking you for something else. I'm going to leave you available because I got another slot I need you to fill that's coming up. So before you get your feeling hurt, Justice, before you freak out, Matt, ease up a little bit. I'm not picking over you. I'm not passing over you because you're not worthy. I've got something else for you. So if you've ever been not picked, it's not because God doesn't value you. He not picked, picked you for something else. How do I know this happens? All the time in scripture. Romans 9, 10 through 13. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebecca, he gave birth to twins. Or she gave birth to twins. Not he, she did. She gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to their good works. How long they prayed? How, how many times they fasted in the last six months? He calls, um, he chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people not according to their good or bad works. <clears throat> she was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scripture, I have loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Matt. You just said, I'm not rejected if God didn't pick me. And I just saw right there that word rejected. That word rejected has a different meaning in the original language. Next line of your notes. The word rejected in the Bible's original language is defined as preferred. Preferred. The translators make decisions. And I guess if you prefer one person over another, it can be rejected. But in our culture right now, there's so much, um, so much emphasis put around the idea of rejection. I'm dealing with rejection. And we can kind of take our own current cultural mindset and put that on the passage. But that's not what God said. Esau is going to be born first before Jacob. And the firstborn is the one that we always give the authority to we let that one become the leader because the firstborn if you had a kingdom if you had a kingdom and you had a firstborn son when the when the king died he passed it off to his firstborn son 
if he was still alive. But God steps in here and says, I'm not going to operate that way. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to take the second son, and I'm going to use him, not because I don't like Esau, but because I prefer to use Jacob. It's his preference. <clears throat> so let's keep going there. Acts chapter 2, we find the account of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon everybody in the upper room. And it happens during the morning, and there's such a ruckus that it's so loud. People are speaking in other languages. People are crying. People are shouting. And it begins to attract these people that are walking by this building that they're in. They're standing around the bottom and going, what's going on up there? People are trying to figure out if they're drunk, if they're, you know, they've been partying too hard from the night before. They don't know what's going on. And so Peter walks down and corrects them. And he preaches the gospel message to them at the bottom of that upper room facility. Next sign of your notes. Peter preaches to those gathering to see what's happening with the people in the upper room. And that day, 3,000 people became believers. <clears throat> so they're all up here in the upper room. The 120 is up here. And then all this crowd begins to gather around out here. Peter walks down. This is Peter. And he begins to preach the gospel to these people. And 3,000 people give their life to Christ that day. No screens, no microphone, no speaker, no music, no nothing. He comes out and tells them the truth. And he gives, and that day, next line of your notes, the believers formed a community. The believers formed a community at that moment. <clears throat> the New Testament church was born. These 3,000 people, they were all in. 100%, 150%. How do we know? Because these 3,000 people went and sold everything they had. You had extra animals and livestock, they sold it. You had an extra home, vacation home, they sold it. You had an extra car, sorry, extra horse or donkey that you drove on, they sold it. Even the one with the nice hooves, the rims, you get it? It's dad joke expert right here. <clears throat> they sold all of them and gave the money to the disciples. These guys take all their money and hand it to the disciples, and the disciples are overrun because 3,000 people keep trying to give them stuff because I'm not about this material possession life. I'm about serving God. Let's help everybody that needs help. The disciples are so overrun by getting all the stuff that they've been given, they don't have time to preach. <clears throat> so they get together and pray about what are they going to do. And they elect people that called deacons to handle the distribution of the money. They put all this in a pot, and they give it out however it's needed. But the disciples, next line of your notes, here we go. The believers grew in numbers very rapidly. The disciples elected seven men, seven, to care for the everyday needs of the people so they could focus on the preaching. We're going to keep going. 
One of the original elders and first Christian martyr was Stephen. <clears throat> so the disciples have been given all this money, all, this, all these worldly possessions. They basically put them in one place. They elect seven guys, and one of them is Stephen. <clears throat> you would think that one of the, the apostles would be the first one to go. First martyr, first guy killed for preaching the gospel. No, it's one of the deacons. One of the deacons. Anybody want to sign up to be a deacon? <laughs> Everybody. <clears throat> the first guy is Stephen. If you go back and read in the book of Acts, what you'll find is that there's a designation before Stephen's name. It says a man who was filled with power and the Holy Spirit. If you are not a member of a church staff, if you're not a pastor, if you're not a worship leader, if you're not on the executive team, if you're not a member of the structure of the church somewhere, it doesn't matter. Because neither was Stephen. And it was identified in Scripture that that guy was filled with the power of God and the Holy Spirit. So much so that he's out here handing out stuff to the people who need it. <clears throat> he's handing out stuff to the people who need it. And here's what happens. The, the legalistic guys, the Pharisees, the rulers of the, uh, uh, kind of the leaders of the, um, the, the, the tabernacle and the Old Testament and the, the law of Moses and the Jewish community, they come to Stephen because he's preaching the gospel and they're like, bro, cut that out. And he goes, uh-uh. So they begin to argue with him and debate. And in this debate, they're giving him all these questions and the Holy Spirit gives him responses that are so profound the the leaders of the of the of the jewish church or, or the jewish community of the old law they can't refute it they got no comeback zero no comeback they can't handle it because they can't handle him they're embarrassed and they say you know what this guy if he's not going to shut up on his own, we're going to shut him up. They accuse him of heresy, which is basically the worst thing in, in, in a religion or a belief system you can be accused of. This next line in your notes, Stephen was falsely accused of heresy and was put on trial by the religious high council. <clears throat> we don't have time to get through it right now, but if you go read chapter 6 of Acts, it is basically like the last stand speech of Stephen, and it's awesome. He just, he, everybody's getting some. He's laying it out to everybody. He's laying out the truth. It doesn't matter who you are. He is presenting the gospel to you. He's present, presenting the truth to you. And those guys are so upset with him at that high council meeting, they decide, uh, we're not going to wait anymore. You're dead now. Next on your notes. In Acts 7, we read the Pharisee leaders put Stephen to death by stoning him. Let's stop right there. Anybody ever heard in the Bible or hear somebody talk about being stoned? Not like stoned like today, but like stoned in the Bible time. <laughs> Two very different things, <clears throat> right? Like a stoning of somebody that put him to death? I guess both could lead to death. I'm like, I'm, I'm struggling here. I'm digging a hole. I'm going to keep going. Um, 
So what they, they didn't just take like little rocks and whiz it at somebody and be like, ouch, stop it. They took these gigantic boulders, yeah. dug a pit first, put the guy down in the pit so he couldn't get away, and then took these giant boulders and threw them at him. He is getting pounded by these stones. At sometimes, depending on where you were and what the, what the technique that was being used, the person that was in the pit, they couldn't get out, and these grown men would get together and push boulders over the pit and crush them to death. That's how Stephen died. Dug a pit, put him down in it. Thank you. Put him down in it. These guys stood up here and just threw stones at him until he stopped breathing. Imagine that stone hitting him in the head. I'm getting queasy looking at the halo on James's leg back there. That right there, the blood, the torture, the agony, him screaming, hearing that, I would not forget that. That's how he dies. All of these guys are around here throwing stones at him, <clears throat> but they want to make sure they get a good, good velocity on their throw, so they all take their coats off and they leave them with their protege. Next line in your notes. Their protege's name? Saul. I used to wonder how Saul, who would chase down Christians and murder them, men, women, and children, I used to wonder how in the world, how in the world did he get so vicious? And then when I read, he sat there and watched the executions. It got real clear real quick. He watched people be murdered because these guys thought they were doing right, protecting the law of Moses. These guys were coming over here saying that that's all over. And they're like, no, it's not. You're over, bro. And they hunted them down, drug them out, put them in front of the, a, basically a sham trial, and imprisoned them or put them to death. Paul begins to grow in stature and he becomes the very best one at tracking down Christians. His, his reputation precedes him because he is cunning, he is smart, and that man is brutal. He's digging through trying to find all of these people left and right in Jerusalem. That's where he's doing the majority of his operation. He is there trying to find them, hunt them down, find little gatherings like this one, drag them out, make sure that they're understood that y'all not going to do that anymore. Word starts to spread to other towns, the Christians that are there. <clears throat> hey, this dude Saul of Tarsus, don't even fool with him. You got to duck out from him, got to get away from him. This guy is, you are not going to survive if he gets there with you. Not going to happen. So then Paul says, he goes to the, the, the leaders of the, the religious 
group and say, I want to go to the next city and start finding Christians. And they're like, go get them and bring them back here. So Saul, right here, who is sitting here, now killing Christians, he decides he's going to go to Damascus. It's a city name that's not too far from Jerusalem. I'm going to go round them up there. And then we'll go to the next city and round them up there. And then we'll go to the next city and round them up there. <clears throat> and what we're going to do is come through and figure out where these guys are until there's none of them left. So on his way to Damascus, what happens? Anybody know? Anybody? There's like this little murmur, like mumble right across the crowd, but no one's brave enough to shout it out. I, I, heard, a, I heard Anita, who doesn't want to do any public speaking, say something. What did you say, Anita? He gets saved. Okay, cool. In a roundabout way, that's exactly what happens. He's writing. Oh, Camille got it? Gotcha. Um, Camille knows. Great. So he's, Saul is writing to Damascus. And on his way here, this light shines down from heaven, knocks him off his horse, and he goes through a conversion experience. Acts chapter 9, 3 through 16. It's in your notes. I'll read it out loud for us. As he, this is Saul, was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Paul, or I'm sorry, Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days, and he did not eat or drink. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. God just straight gave him an address, like out of nowhere. Go to this road, to this house, right here. <clears throat> when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now, and I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in, laying hands on him so he can see again. Then Ananias remembers who Saul is. <laughs> but Lord, <clears throat> exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. In short, don't let me go over there. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings as well as the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my, name, my name's sake. Saul doesn't waste any time. <clears throat> so Ananias is right here. Saul is over here blind. This is a face. I need your eyes that don't work. Art. Um, it'll be for sale after on eBay. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, so Ananias is right here. He goes and prays for him. 
and these and he gets his, his sight back these two large things like scales fall off of his eyes now he can see and Saul realizes oh no I'm on the wrong side of this thing I've been killing these fools I've been tracking them all down no I actually got to go preach this message now and so he doesn't waste any time he's an all-in kind of guy so he goes all in Acts 9 19 to 31 Afterward, he, this is Saul, ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. Stop right there. If you heard about Saul and you're a believer living in Damascus, and he rolls up, and he's like, Jesus is the Son of God. All y'all need to be saved to go to heaven. Have faith in him. Repent of your sins. What are y'all going to do? No, bro. You lying. This is a trick. You're trying to flush us out into the open so it's easier to figure out who we are. You're trying to get into one of these big groups and figure out where the connection is. And so they are uh, a little bit hesitant. And anybody understand that? I'd be afraid too. Let's keep going. <clears throat> All who heard him preach were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused devastation or such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proof that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him, but Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas... This dude's awesome, by the way. <clears throat> Barnabas brought him to the disciples and told him how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Paul. He had also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some of the Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. Let's stop right there. <clears throat> Saul rolls up to Damascus. All these people are afraid of him. They don't want nothing to do with him. And the people who sent him, the religious leaders and the Jewish people are like, wait, did you just change jerseys on me? Like you went from... Team A to Team B? What, what are you doing, bro? And they listen, and they watch him become more powerful in his speaking, and now the people who he is on the side with, his allies, the people on his side, <clears throat> don't believe him, and they're scared of him, and the people that sent him there that he's rejecting, they hate him. Saul has put himself in the middle of a wild situation. These guys want to kill him. So he sneaks out of a hole in the wall, 
They let him down. Then he goes back to Jerusalem. He gets there, and what happens to the believers? Mm -mm. I know what you did. You're not, you're not taking us. You're not fooling us. Then all the people who sent him, they're mad at him and try to kill him too. There's uproar here. There's uproar here because his reputation and what he used to do preceded him and nobody believed he had changed. So what do the believers do when they realize <clears throat> wherever this guy go, there's a problem? Next line of your notes. Saul caused an uproar ever, everywhere he went to preach. <clears throat> so, he's causing an uproar here, he's causing an uproar here, and what do the believers decide to do to him? Remove him from the equation. The church then had peace through... Um, um, let's back up. When the believers heard about this, all the, all the chaos, they took him to Caesarea and sent him away to his hometown of Tarsus. Once he was there, now look what happened. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. <clears throat> Everywhere Paul was, he's causing uproar just by him being there. They say, no, bro, it's too crazy with you here. You got to go back home. And they took him back to his hometown and dropped him off there. As soon as they remove him from the equation, everybody chills out, everybody calms down, and then everybody is at peace. People start preaching. They start sharing the gospel. The church begins to grow. They have all these new friends and new believers that are joining the church. And it's starting to spread. <clears throat> now, let's throw a curveball at the, at the apostles. In chapter 10, next line, uh, next line of your, I'm sorry, next line of your notes. We're introduced to an Italian guardsman named Cornelius, who's a believer in Jesus. Just before we get to your next item notes, sorry, just before we get there. Remember we did the series earlier this year on the armor of God? And we talked about what the Roman soldiers wore and how you did not want to fool with those guys? This is one of them. Cornelius is a man of God <clears throat> who, who in scripture it says that he was a man who honored God. He was kind to the poor. He helped the needy. He's committed to his family. And Cornelius, not a Jew, a Roman guard, begins to pray to God and God shows him a vision and tells him, take three of the guys that work for you and go find this dude named Peter and gives him an address. He's over at this location. At that same time, Peter is praying, and God shows him a number of things, but the, at the end of this vision he has, he says, hey, there's three guys coming for you. I want you to go with them. 
knock at the door. Hey, is Peter here? Uh, we're with Cornelius, the Roman soldier, the leader of the Italian guard for this area. We need Peter. What kind of panic you think went through that room? How do you even know he's here? They call up to Peter. He comes downstairs. No problem, guys. God showed me that I'm supposed to go with him. So Cornelius, not knowing Peter, and Peter, not knowing Cornelius, just flat obeyed God, and they wind up in the same house together. They wind up in Cornelius' house. Remember, these aren't just like made-up stories, so think about what that interaction was like for Peter walking into Cornelius' house. Think of what Cornelius is thinking. I don't know who this is, but it must be good. And they're staring at each other. You rain? Like, what? What do you, what do you need? I don't know. I was praying, and God told me to come get you. He's like, I was praying. God told me to go with you. And then Peter, something hits him. Uh, there's a whole bunch of gods in Rome. Like more than 90 that are worshipped. How are you praying to the God that I talk to? He's like, I've been honoring God for a long time, praying to him. He told me to bring you here. And so this is really strange because now next on your notes. This is strange because until that time, the disciples only saw Jews become believers in Jesus. They think they're the chosen people. Jesus is coming to save everybody. And so who do they think he's saving? All the Jewish people. They're still in this narrow mindset. <clears throat> but then, when they start to figure this out, Peter starts telling them about Jesus. And look what happens. Acts chapter 10, 44, verse 48. Even as Peter was saying these things, telling them about Jesus, the Holy Spirit fell on all who were listening to the message. Cornelius and all his family, all the Gentiles that were in the room, not just the Jews. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders to them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterward, Cornelius asked to stay with them for several days. <coughs> so here's Peter. Here's Cornelius. For all intents and purposes, we don't know that they really even knew each other. They follow God and come in here. <clears throat> and now they meet. And now the curveball happens because the Holy Spirit is not just on the Jews anymore. It now falls on Cornelius. <clears throat> Imagine the confusion in all these guys. Wait. What? On the Gentiles? On a Roman soldier? These guys who crucified Jesus? He's pouring out his spirit on them now? What are we doing? 
And so Peter realizes that's why he asked all his companions, who can, who are we to say we can't do this? They're receiving the same spirit we are. And so what happens is people begin to go to these other cities and tell the Gentiles about Jesus. <clears throat> Peter has to go back to the rest of the apostles and break the news. Hey, guys. You thought uh, 3,000 people handing us their stuff was a lot to deal with in this one city? It's now everybody, not just the Jews. Everybody's got an open door to find Jesus. So stories begin to come over the next several weeks and months and period of time. All these stories of these other Gentile believers and churches begin to form... And the stories start to pour into the apostles. And the apostles, being very wise and smart and shrewd men, they go, let's send some people to check these out. Make sure it's legit. So the disciples get Barnabas. Remember him? The one who believed Saul and brought him to them to talk to him about he really is converted. They send Barnabas to a city named Antioch. Okay? Antioch. They send Barnabas down here. Barnabas rolls through and he goes, This is legit. Same Holy Spirit, same God, same message, same gospel, same Jesus I'm talking about. <clears throat> They've been told about him. They're professing him. They're gathering together. They're forming a church in this city. This is the right thing. And then something hits Barnabas. How are we going to help all these people right here when we're already overrun in Jerusalem? Barnabas then has a very God-ordained idea. There's this guy over in Tarsus that I remember we dropped off there and left there. And so Barnabas travels from Antioch to Tarsus, picks up Saul, brings him back to Antioch, and they spend a year there building the church in Antioch. After Antioch, Barnabas, okay, ain't no text messages, ain't no phone calls, <clears throat> ain't no DMs, emails, fax, uh, Morse code, telegram, Nothing. Imagine what that looks like after they sent Barnabas to go check up on Antioch. He don't come back for more than a year. And when he does roll back up, he rolls back up with Saul. They spend some time with him and commission him. Hey, who's his reputation with? Who knows about his reputation? The Jewish believers. Who don't know his reputation? The Gentiles. So they commission him to start doing missionary journeys to go out and tell the Gentiles about Christ. <clears throat> this is the part of the story we're just going to stop at for today. <clears throat> Wildly interesting, right? 
Never knew how intricate the design was. But here's what I want to draw our attention to. This portion of time right here. I started thinking, how long did they leave him there? I mean, he got dropped off there in chapter 9. He gets picked up in chapter 11. And then our very, you know, Netflix, binge watch, skip the commercials type of culture, we could think, ah, probably a couple weeks. A month? Six months? <clears throat> the majority of the biblical historians that I found agree that Saul sat here in Tarsus for nine years. Saul sat there in Tarsus waiting to go do the thing he had been knocked off his horse to go do for nine years. What's happened in your life in the last nine years? lot. My son, grown man, was 12. Rashad, running all our tech, he was 9, 8. He wasn't looking as good then either. It was awesome. Love the shoes. What has happened in your life in the last nine years? If you were to make a list, you'd be like, oh my gosh, where do I start? Saul is sitting there watching people get married. He's going to funerals. He's watching people start families, businesses. He's watching people come and go. Do you think there was ever a time, even just once in nine years, where he laid his head? head down after working as a tent maker, because that's what his profession was, so it's pretty safe to assume that's kind of what he was working on. He's working there in his own business, trying to make a living. You think there's any night that he laid down maybe around year four and a half on a Tuesday and went, what the heck is going on? Why am I still here? I started preaching. That's what you wanted me to do. You knocked me off my horse. Everybody saw it. I got prayed for. There's a miracle. These scales fell off my eyes. I realized you're God, but I went to go preach, and it just caused a whole bunch of problems, and they dropped my behind off here in my hometown, and I've been sitting here ever since. You ever think you might have had just one night like that? There is a point of time in life where God tells you you're going to do this or I'm going to do something with you and then there's a gap. And during that gap, you're not there because he's mad at you. You're not there because he's angry or you screwed up, or you're being rejected. 
the distance between what he promised you and the fulfillment of that promise in the middle of that gap, it can seem like, when is this going to be over? But he did not leave you there for no reason. It's his preference because his goal is his will, not our comfort. His goal is to fulfill his purpose, not solve the struggle for us that we're in the middle of right now. If you are sick and you've prayed and God says, I'm going to heal you. And it doesn't happen in the next three weeks. And he chooses to let it go another two years. Because the last doctor you're going to meet is going to watch you be healed. And that's going to ignite a pursuit of Christ in that doctor. Then he is very content to help you endure through the sickness for those years until it can accomplish the goal on the back end. The problem is we don't know what the goal is on the back end. The problem is we get dropped off there and we have to wait and then we start getting frustrated. Maybe he means for me just to step out and do something. Maybe he means this is the time that I just need to jump out there and go after it. Why did you do this? I prayed and asked you for this, and I had this unbelievable peace and confidence that you're about to answer my prayer. But in the midst of that, between the moment where that I had that moment with God where he's given me his promise and then the promise fulfilled, there is likely going to be a gap, just like there was with Paul. Hopefully it won't be nine years. But if it is, we have to remember something. And here's what I want you to remember. Look at this. <clears throat> Starts with the cross, goes to the tomb. He directs people to, to go over to the mountain, and they watch him ascend. And then there's 500 people, and then he tells them to go, and he sees these 500, and he ascends. And then he tells these guys to go wait, and then he goes, okay, replace this guy who's in the um, who's going to replace Judas, and then I want you to go over here, and then I want you to, to wait for the Holy Spirit, then I want you to preach to these 3,000, and then these guys are going to give you everything, and it looks like it looks like you go there, you sit down, you time to rise up, you wait for a little bit, you not so loud, you a little bit louder, I'm going to come and help you play your part. If you don't figure it out, don't worry about it. You're not going to be rejected. You still get to participate. And it looks like he's been orchestrating this thing the entire time. You do not serve a God who forgets anything, much less his children. You are serving the God who is the master conductor. Hebrews tells us that we don't have a God who doesn't know the things that we're dealing with. 
It tells us that he lived a life and struggled in every single area that you struggle in. He was tempted in every single area you, you were tempted in. The details are different, but the temptation is the same. And if you are sitting there going, I have asked God to do this. I feel like he has given me his word that this is going to happen. And I'm waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. I'm waiting for the prayer to be answered. I'm waiting for all this to come to fruition. Do not get frustrated in that way. Waiting because my friends, he's the one who has, who's the master conductor. If you fall off in the middle of it, he can step out of where he is and say, I can fix this. There's grace for you. Let me show you the right way to handle this. Let me show you the right way to approach this. Let me show you the right way to deal with this problem. Let me take the instrument from you and show you because he's proficient in every single area. He shows you how to play in that moment. He shows you how to act in that moment. He shows you what you need to do to follow him and to obey him because he knows every single part and every single piece about every single struggle you and I have. He's the master conductor. If you had to sit down, he's orchestrating it. If you had to wait and it's out of obedience, he's orchestrating it. If you messed up and need grace, he orchestrates that. If you are wondering how come it's all working for you and not for your friends and you feel bad, he's orchestrating that. What we have to go back to is trust the fact that he's looking at the entire picture, not just our part. Not just the note I need to play today. Not just the place I need to step today. He sees everything in its entirety that we can't see. And he's saying, it's time for Anita to come up. No, it's time for Elijah to come up. Now it's time for Sarah to go. Now it's time for Matt to sit down. It's time for this person to be quiet. It's time for this one to go. Because he, in the same way he was pushing this person here and here and there and moving them to this city and then giving this one insight. And this one's going to come up and see me because he's going to be put to death. The same way he orchestrated the entire thing of the New Testament church beginning that we're standing on their shoulders, he continues to orchestrate today. So instead of frustration and fear, I'm encouraging you to remember ultimate faith in the master conductor. Don't quit now. It's only in the middle of the song. Don't lay your drumsticks down and walk out. You're not done playing. It's not your composition. It's his. And we're playing a role in his composition. So for us, we must default to faith that he knows every single detail. My assumption is God would prompt something like this to be communicated to everybody here or watching or will listen to this later because there is a moment of frustration for some people in this room where you have been waiting for a long time or you've been praying for something or whatever and you're in a moment of decision I'm asking you and I'm encouraging you and I'm if I can nudge you in the right direction 
hold out, put faith in the God who sees every detail, and just trust that he is orchestrating it to the fulfillment of his plan. Amen.